My guest this week is Aisha Susay. Aisha is a British journalist of Sierra Leonean descent who became a TV news star in 2014 when she led a CNN news team to a Peabody Award for her coverage of the kidnapping of 276 schoolgirls in Nigeria by the Boko Haram terrorist group. Aisha stayed with the story over the years and spent time with many of the 164 girls who escaped or were eventually released as part of the negotiations with the Nigerian government, as well as with the families of the 112 girls who are still unaccounted for. She stayed with the story even after public attention moved on. But in August, she quit cable news because, in part, she was tired of covering Trump stories, and she put her experiences covering the schoolgirls into a book, Beneath the Tamarind Tree, which is a beautifully written book that I highly recommend. In 2014, Sese launched an educational, humanitarian, non-profit organization called We Can Lead which stands for Women Everywhere Can Lead, which was created to support African girls in receiving educational support so they could become future leaders. In August 2018, the program was mostly working with Nigerian girls, but it is now open for girls from everywhere in Africa. Aisha spoke to me from her apartment in New York. I loved meeting this woman. I found her inspiring and moving, and it was a real pleasure to uncover her books with her. I'm so grateful to you for making no, thank the time. You. Thank I you. really am. This is a, a, an absolute treat for me. I've been listening to you. Uh, I love it when authors read their own books. I find <laughs> it so powerful and moving. And as someone who's done books on tape, um, I know what a challenge it is. And I feel like it's as a listener, it's such a joy to get to hear the person who wrote it well, thank you. Uh, lean into what matters. There's no disguising uh, the the passion that you have for the extraordinary book that you wrote. Thank Just, you. So, you know, I, I always do an intro separately so that I can go on at length about my guest and their uh, <laughs> attributes without making them wince on the Thank other side you. of the, the microphone. Um, but I can't, even with an intro, knowing that that's coming, I, I can't not say to your face what a beautiful piece of work you Thank you created, not, not just as um, a, a political in its richest sense of the word testimony, but as a piece of writing, uh, as a, as a consumer of, of so much, fiction and non-fiction I, I I really love and revere good writing and I I was and was and am just loving your words they're thank really you. something so thank, thank you. you um and I loved getting you a list it's <laughs> such a treat I, I say this often on the podcast it's one of the emails of the week that I get a genuine frisson over is when mm-hmm. my guests send me their list. It's such a pleasure. And sometimes I savor it till the end of the day. So I put <laughs> to bed and I can actually sort of absorb it. And then I do my deep dive into everyone's books. And yours was the rare occasion where I have actually read all of them multiple times. Mm-hmm. And because often I'll have, you know, I know the author or I know mm. of the book or whatever, but, but to actually have five old friends appear on the page was just delicious to me, really delicious. So uh, without further ado, let's dive into your first one, sure. which is Beloved by yes. Toni Morrison. 
which was published in 1987 and won the Pulitzer the year after. Uh, Tell me who you were when you read this book and maybe who you were after you read this book. Oh, what a beautiful question. I think the person who read that book, and I read it while I was at university and um, while I was at Trinity Cambridge and had no real understanding um, of the of the darkness of slavery and its impact on the black family and had never really encountered prose that was so, you know, they've, they've said this before about Toni Morrison, her prose is elegiac mm. and um, it was transformative, not just in the insights that it provided and its reflections on life, and survival and memory, but also just in the language and the power of language. And I think I came out of that book. Um, I was at university in 94 to 97. And, and I think that yeah, it didn't take many days to, to complete, but I, I think I was fully transformed by, by the experience of reading this and mm-hmm. feeling that I had been gifted um, something really special. And, and I felt that I had this new understanding of pain and loss and resilience. Mm. And I, I use some of the words from Beloved in my own book mm. um, as, as one of the opening quotes, um, mm. because that resilience and that waiting and longing um, for someone who's out of reach which is, you know, which refers in my case to my mother who is, you know, in this place of almost like suspended animation and minimal consciousness after a stroke. Mm. It, it really did impact me. It really yeah. did impact me. Yeah. Was your, because I, I, I'm touched and oddly relieved, I think, to hear you say that you didn't discover this until university mm-hmm. because as someone who was, I think like you gifted with an extraordinarily privileged education. I, to my shame, did not read black voices Mm -hmm. until much, much later in my Mm -hmm. life. That was Mm -hmm. not part of my education. It was something I had to go off and like many others, I think, find for myself. And I, I think, for lots of people, Toni Morrison is is their point of entry. Yes, yes. So I'm curious, was, you know, I know you are from Sierra Leone and that's your heritage, but that you were raised, if I'm not wrong, largely in, in the UK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did it, did this, um, was it a, was it a reimagining of what blackness was yes. for you? And, and the difference between being English and yes. black and American and black was, was that part of it? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's something which, you know, I live with inherently even today in America yeah. that, you know, I don't walk through the world with the same legacy, you know, mm-hmm. as African-Americans. And mm-hmm. so that was captured on, on the page for me with, with, with Beloved. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't an isolated experience. It's something I feel every single day here, mm-hmm. that difference in my POV and, mm-hmm. and maybe even my interactions with, with, with white people. You know, it's mm-hmm. just not as charged 
and it's painful in the same way because it doesn't have the same his- history, the same historical baggage. Yeah. Um, because I can't point to any part of my family that was caught up in the mm-hmm. horrors of, of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, to me, quite distant, not intellectually or not even emotionally, but just, mm. you know, in my family tree and my direct experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not part of, part of that. Um, and so for me, it was shocking because, you know, of course I was aware of slavery. Of course I was aware of, of racism and, and, and prejudice, but she captures it so viscerally mm. on the page. And as I say, it is so transformative, um, those words. And the, 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 and then to read that it's based on a true story, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of a, of a mother who was enslaved, who indeed a mother, one who tried tried to kill, in fact, I think she was successful in, in killing um, her baby so that they won't return to slavery. It shattered my image mm. of America. Mm. There, was, there was no real coming back from that as soon as you, once you understood that this was true and then, yeah. and then the roots of this are true and the roots are strong. Mm. I'm struck that you mentioned your mum, who I have heard you speak about with such um, reverence and inspiration and clearly is such a formative, huge, huge person for you. Beloved to me is, um, you know, on it, I, I think on its, my second reading of it, I, which was some years later, once the, once my body was ready for the shock mm. of what was to come, I was so struck by what a study of maternity it is. Yes. What a, um, and I think probably at the second time I read it, I'd already had one of my kids. So the the sort of, uh, to use your word, the visceral understanding of what this uh, blood link is to be a mother is was really, um, I, I was surprised as, mm. as rereading so often gives one, yes. you know, by that the the the, the insight into uh, here's a whole other dimension. Here's what I missed because I didn't literally didn't know it, and my body didn't know it yes. when the first time I I read it. I, I think that's true. I think I actually read it again um, maybe three months ago. I, I read uh-huh. it fairly recently, and for me what I, I took away from it this time was really the, and it's interesting because I, I think the first couple, the first time I, I read it, it, the person I was was shocked by the slavery and the brutality. Mm-hmm. And then second time I, I read it, it was more about the maternal love and mm-hmm. the loss and the longing. This time I came back to the slavery mm-hmm. because I think of the moment we're in right now yeah. with, with George Floyd's killing and um, this reckoning um, that is taking place. So for mm-hmm. me, reading it now and reading it as someone who lives in America sure. is a very different experience and yeah. left very, a very different impression. And what I found myself going back to um, were the words um, spoken by the character Baby Suggs and mm. what she says about white people and them breaking families and there being nothing good in the world because of them. And it, it, it's really weird, but that is, that's really what resonated, you know, in this moment, you know, of, of, of pain and trying to find some kind of peace mm. in, in, this divided, in this divided society. Yeah. She writes about uh, 
fragmentation, and we'll get to more of this in your second book, but in a way that is so immediate, not just in her insight, but the way she uses her prose to mirror a a fragmented soul or a a fragmented state. And watching Sethi, the mother in in the book, for readers that haven't read Beloved, I cannot urge it enough, but uh, Sethi, who is this slave mother who has killed one of her children, as Aisha said, to stop them being taken back into slavery and so is living with the ghost um, mm-hmm. of this child and uh, then a an beautiful and unmarked uh, woman appears on their doorstep whose na- only name is beloved mm-hmm. uh, and you know you live on this fragmented threshold of is beloved a ghost is she real she has no marks on her she has no lines on her hands and beloved was the only word that sethi could afford to put mm. on her dead daughter's tombstone on her, pink so, tombstone. On her pink tombstone so there's this um uh, it's it's just an extraordinary extraordinary book i'm i'm was thrilled you picked it and uh, amazed I, I i keep a spreadsheet of all my guests and their lists and i'm i love going back in and seeing where where people have coincided mm-hmm. and sort of secretly wondering to myself what the overlap might be or not, or what people have responded to differently. And I was amazed to find that we haven't had beloved on the show. Before. Oh, wow. Tar baby, but not beloved. So this it's, is a real excuse to think about it. There it's was a okay. lovely quote that I just wanted to say, um, Paul D who is mm. a, another escaped slave who shows up on their step or doorstep and says to Sethi, your love is too thick. Yes. And Sethi replies, thin love is no love, which I, I just, love. And I just use that in a piece that I'm writing. Um, I'm writing a, I'm writing something. Um, and I, I just use those exact words uh, for, for a character because it's funny that you chose those nice things that resonated with me along with that scene in the forest where baby Suggs has everybody, you know, dance and love mm. and, and cause them to love themselves. Yeah. So, and it's just, it's a feat. It's a feat of creativity and imagining. And we're lucky to, to have that book in the world. Yeah, we really are. Let's talk about your second book which is also by Toni Morrison mm. and is called The Bluest Eye. Uh, this one I think shocked me even more than Beloved when I read yes. this. It was published in 1970. And I just want to add this detail in because I have two children and I was so astonished and humbled by this fact. Uh, so Beloved was written in 1987, Bluest Eye in 1970, which means that Toni Morrison was 39 Mm -hmm. when she wrote it and Mm -hmm. would get up at 4 a.m. in order to write while raising two kids Mm -hmm. on her own. Uh, That to me, (laughs) that that fact alone, even without the bluest eye being what it is, Mm -hmm. is just devastating to Mm -hmm. me. Uh, Talk to me about the bluest eye and why it's on your list. I think that as a black female, the questions of where you, of how you fit into majority white societies uh, when it comes to norms of beauty are always, always close to the surface. Mm. And I think that it was a book that really stripped 
back the, the difficulties and, and lead, lead bare the difficulties that many black children face and those difficulties continue even in adulthood. Mm. And for me, it was, it was searing in the way she so beautifully captured this, this, this agony, this, mm. this self-hate that's, that can inf- infect black minds and, and black bodies and, 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 and is extreme. We'll see people transform their faces and noses and lighten their skin and long to be something else. Mm. Um, and so for me, it was a book which I just found incredibly, it's incredibly bold. It's an incredibly bold and brave book because <clears throat> we don't, we, you know, in the black community, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not discussed very much, you know, these, the, these, these issues. And there was a time not too long ago where, you know, it became quite a trend for people of color to wear contact lenses with, of different colors, mm. you know, and, and it, it taps into this in some way that, you know, what we're naturally born with isn't, isn't attractive to others or isn't, you know, isn't, isn't beautiful. Mm. So for me, it was a book that was profoundly moving um, just in its honesty. Mm. Did you, uh, were you conscious of that growing up? Were you conscious that there was an inbuilt distrust, mislike? Uh, did your mum or your family model that? Is that just the background noise that you grow up with? I mean, God knows as a woman, but as clearly a white woman, I know about self-hate, self-loathing, shame, but it is not about the color of my skin, sure, which makes sure. it a radically different experience. I'm curious whether that, whether the book awoke you to something that you hadn't yet named in yourself or whether it was why No, I, I think by the time I read it, I was in my 20s, so it wasn't – because I, I always remember as a child having this moment where um, – for me, and I had a split childhood between Sierra Leone in West Africa and, and London. And I'm so grateful for that childhood in, in Africa because I grew up in a majority black society. And so for most of the year, most of the school year, you know, my, my form, my being was exactly what was appreciated and valued. And then I'd spend summer holidays in the UK. This is until I moved back to London for A-levels and university. And then there would be this, this tension. Mm. And for me, it wasn't skin color. It was, for me, what, what, what I think as a child, I had um, some sensitivity around was actually body shape. Right. Right. I think that was it. And I remember my mother at the time when this might've been around this must have been the early nineties where leggings came in and everybody mm-hmm. went in. and my mom bought a whole like selection of different colored leggings. And I remember, I remember saying to her, I'm too fat to wear these. Ugh. And that's entirely a sense of just not being the same size and shape yeah. as the people who are wearing them, who when I yeah. watch TV and read magazines are white. Yeah. Um, so I think by the time I read the book, it wasn't that it awoke, it didn't awake something in me. It just captured beautifully right. an inherent 
sensitivity that, yeah. that, that lives within um, women of color. And that is part of the female experience, right? Very much so. Very, very, very much so. Um, yes. I, I um, again, for people that haven't read it, the book, as you may have been able to guess, is, is about a young girl, Pecola, who uh, longs for blue eyes. And, yes. Uh, and Shirley um, Temple blue eyes. Shirley Temple blue eyes. Um, I dug it out of the bookcase because I it's I'd read Beloved more recently than The Bluest Eye. So I, I wanted to remind myself of the quality of the prose and the voice in there. And uh, I was struck by the book opens and tells you what the Absolutely. story is in yes. its opening paragraph, which uh, is always such an interesting thing because having robbed us of the narrative suspense of what will mm -hmm. happen. So the story becomes how yes. this story is going to be told. And that to me gets to the heart of what the bluest eye is about actually is not the facts themselves, but what we do with those facts. Mm -hmm. It is not the fact of the eye color or the body shape or even the skin color there. Mm -hmm. I widen out from this, but how we choose to speak our story, yes. how we choose to tell it is uh, where we choose to stand and position ourselves. Pecola is not the narrator of the story. No. Um, it's narrated by the girl, the Claudia. girl that takes her in mm. and uh, whose family take her in. And I, I was, I found that such an interesting thing to think about. I don't think I'd noticed that again when I'd, when I'd read it, that uh, we, you do tumble through the book in order to find out mm -hmm. how and what, and at some deep level uh, suspend your own disbelief that maybe Pecola will get a blue eye. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, there, there is that. Uh, it, and, and yet you have been told in the opening paragraph, what will happen to Pecola. And I, I found that really moving to, to discover again. I think um, Toni Morrison, you know, the books through the, the works that I, I've read and um, every song Solomon and um, Sula also um, does this masterful job of capturing um, black community and just how vicious it can be in and of itself. And I, and I think in the blue side, we see that and we see how um, unempathetic people can be and how they can, how judgmental they can be of one story and um, to see how, you know, and, you know, it's the same with, with Setha and in, in, in beloved, how the, they, they turn on her after mm -hmm. the feast and, you know, they felt she was just too proud and she was just mm -hmm. too, she, she felt that they felt, she felt she was above them and there's a casting out of her. And we see that same casting out of Pocola mm -hmm. in, in the bluest eye. Yeah. Um, and she captures, she, 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 Tony Morrison does a, a, an, an amazing job. I think in all of us of capturing the cruelty that we're all capable of. It's not a yeah. white thing. It's not a black thing. The cruelty that we are all capable of. Yeah. And um, that is always searing. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your third book. Your third book uh, undid me. I was so glad to see it on this list. Mm -hmm. I haven't thought about it since I read it. And yet when I read it, it landed uh, like a meteor. It really did. 
the book is When Breath Becomes Air mm -hmm. by Paul Kalanithi. And it was published in 2016 um, posthumously. Uh, for readers that might not know about it, uh, Paul was a, a doctor uh, and a specialist and was diagnosed with cancer and died uh, two years from diagnosis. Yeah, that's right, 22 months, yeah. Um, tell me, I have a odd inclination. Were you friends? Did you know him? Were you at Cambridge together? We weren't, but I have recently interviewed his wife, actually. Lucy. Yes, ah. Lucy. And that was will, will live on as definitely one of the most impactful interviews I've, I've done um, ah. in, in a long time, if, if not ever, just to hear her speak of, the journey they took together and the journey she's now on mm. with their little girl, Katie. Um, this was a book which I have read and continue to read entirely through the prism of my mother's illness because the book is entirely about what makes life meaningful, what gives it meaning, what gives it value, and how do you live within you know in the shadow of death how do you live a meaningful life knowing that death is at hand mm. and um you know it, it 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 brings to mind so many questions for me personally and my family as you know my mother was a vibrant um powerful force in Sierra Leone, powerful political force within our within our community and then was struck down by a stroke that has left her hospitalized and bedridden for almost five years. Wow, I'm so sorry. Thank you. And it has led me to, to, to really think about the questions that Paul, you know, describes and captures in his own life mm. in, in that book and what gives life. Do you want to live at all costs? Yeah. Um, how much should we determine the the way our lives end and at what point, you know, like it's about our value systems mm -hmm. and what we hold dear. And it, it's just, it, to me, it's, I remember reading it on a plane and just bawling my eyes out, I bet. just bawling my eyes out with everybody looking around, you know, pre COVID just, you know, just mm -hmm. shuffling away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's a stunning piece of, philosophy and memoir yeah hi i'm thank you for sharing that aisha i'm i'm so sorry for thank your you. you and your family that's that's uh the death in life life in death is is just its own kind of trauma mm -hmm. my father had a, a very uh, had a devastating accident and it debilitated him for many years yes. before he he died so i, I do know in my own way, what it is to, to live with that uh, paralysis of sure. uncertainty that is, that is um, so painful. I was so struck by the fact that this occurred to him with his unique set of qualifications yes. Yes. versus doctor and humanist yes. who had clearly, you know, he was a multiple doctorate with a degree, which was why I'd asked when I was reading you know, reminding myself of his story that he'd been at Cambridge and I'd wondered mm -hmm. whether you'd overlapped because he did a, his PhD, uh, his um, 
undergraduate was in English literature at mm-hmm. Cambridge, and then he went to Stanford uh, for his residency as a, and you know, decided to become a doctor because he felt that language was trying to get at the essence of what it was to be human, but that biology uh, was where he wanted to reside. Mm -hmm. And that then he has this experience and his whole life, it seems to me, had been about trying to get at death and how we talk about death and what what happens in the body when we die. And that then he got to... I I say got to as though it were a privilege, but because he treats it in that way, Mm -hmm. then he got to embody what that threshold was. He, with his great facility of language and all his science, got to live out this threshold that most of us, that that awaits all of us, but that few of us are equipped to maybe anatomize in the way that that he could. And I think that, you know, as, as you lay out, the, the multiple degrees that he he attained, and I, I think the book contains a simple truth about about life, and it's certainly something that I've applied to my own mother's life. That they they, they strived for years and and thought to enjoy life at a later date. That yes. they you know that they would just. I'm just I'm just going to do the work, and in a way, I won't live today. I'll mm. just work. Mm. And I think it's a lesson to us all, you know, Paul's story and even in what happened to my mother, just of the uncertainty and the fragility of this moment. And a question again, once more about values and what you do value Mm. um, and, and what you make time for. And as simplistic as that sounds, I think a lot of us would do well to remember that. Mm. And um, in, 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 in Paul's life, in his story, I think, I think you see that again, captured and, and described so, so beautifully. And, you know, they decide to have a baby, even though he's dying and, you know, he, and he talks about it in the book and excuse me, when Lucy, you know, she told me in a conversation um, and it's captured in the book, she says, you know, wouldn't it make dying so much more painful knowing that, you're going to leave this this child. And he said, but wouldn't that be great? Mm. You know, and it, it's not running from the pain. Uh, it's embracing it as part of life. Mm. And in a way, it makes life so much more poignant and it, it makes it hyper real and maybe hyper valuable. Mm-hmm. And um, I... I, I to be able to write like that, you know, the few, you know, Toni Morrison is one of those authors alongside um, um, Paul Clanathy that I find myself just marveling at. Mm. I agree that the, the, the courage to stare it down and wrestle with it uh, and lay it bare on the page and to be that vulnerable. uh, I, I found that, I found him writing about his physical pain almost mm. unendurable. I really did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that to me um, it was it just agony, <laughs> literally agony. No, I, I, I felt the same way. I, I, it it took the breath out of my body. You yeah. know, when when I, I read those pages, as you see him slowly deteriorate, and again, a little bit like the bluest eye in setting it up right at the beginning. 
mm. with you understanding how this ends. Mm. We know right at the beginning because Paul says, mm. you know, he's looking at these scans and he sees the cancer, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, riddling this body, but it's his body. And so we know. I have the paragraph here. It begins, I flipped through the CT scan images, the diagnosis obvious. The lungs were matted with innumerable tumors, the spine deformed, a full lobe of the liver obliterated, cancer widely disseminated. I was a neurosurgical a neurosurgical resident entering my final year of training. Over the last six years, I'd examined scores of such scans on the off chance that some procedure might benefit the patient. But this scan was different. It was my own. That's the opening paragraph of this book. And, and again, to people that haven't read it, I, it sounds so depressing. But <laughs> it yet, is. It, it, what it is is an exhortation to live, yes. as you were saying. It really is. It is not a tragedy. He, he, uh, I read this uh, in an interview. I'm not sure if it's in the book. But he said to a friend in an email, it's just tragic enough and yes. just imaginable yes. enough, yes. Uh, which I thought was a wonderful quote and, and really spoke to the way he um, treats his subject matter himself uh, is – I'm not going to say with levity, but with wit, with imagination and with life, with, yeah. with a just love of of life and of the privilege of being alive. So I, I'm with you. I don't think that's trite as a lesson. And I, I, that's exactly the takeaway I think he would want us to have yeah. is, is to live as fully and imaginatively as, as possible. I, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and his wife has become an activist mm. um, around issues of um, end of life care and, you know, allowing people to help, um, allowing people to take the lead in determining the, the, the protocols that doctors devise for them, particularly mm. when they're facing um, life-ending um, diseases. So, you know, Paul had to decide, does he take, you know, the medication that would make his hand shake and stop him from, you know, performing surgery or not? It's a question of your value system and yeah. what it means for you to be alive. Mm. And, um, you know, she, she's, she's talking more and more about it. But again, these are all questions that we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah. And um, it's a book that I urge everyone to read. Mm. I read a. I noticed I didn't actually. I have it bookmarked still. Uh, an article in the New York Times, I think it was, about death doulas and how that be- is becoming a growing That's right. uh, industry. Which I say, yeah, uh, yay to. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, we should be ushered as courteously and respectfully out as we are, hopefully, brought in. Yes. Um, your next book, I was thrilled to see on the list. Uh, we haven't had one by her yet and it was just fun to think about uh-huh. so your next book is the handmaid's tale by mm-hmm. margaret atwood which was published in 1985 when did you read this when i was doing my a levels uh-huh. um and it was the first time that i again was made aware of just the level of well, first of all, I read Atwood, but also the, the, the thing is, I remember learning that she had, she had built the world of Gilead um, um, around features and facts that were of the world. They have, all have a historical basis. 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she, you know, her, her ultimate mission was to say, this isn't that far away. We've seen this in different forms, in, in different in different ways, you know, whether it's Afghanistan, um, whether it's, you know, Africa or Europe or whatever that we've seen, Iran, that we've seen this kind of repression of women um, and repression of, of, of everyone's rights. And I remember hearing that in my, you know, late teens and being completely shocked and terrified by that, mm. but also galvanized by the images of Offred and these other female resistance fighters that, and the, the, these characters that she, she, she fills the pages with. And I think from then till now, I've always found myself coming back to um, don't let the bastards grind you down. And that has stayed with me my whole life since reading it. <laughs> <laughs> Were you born an activist, do you think? Um, I think that because my, my older sister was born with cerebral palsy. And so I think when you live with someone who is considered to be on the margins as, as a disabled individual, when you come from a part of the world, which, you know, I come from one of the poorest countries in the world in Sierra Leone, which is mm-hmm. considered to be on the margins. I think you, you develop that. Mm-hmm. If you have any seed of being outspoken, um, I think it flowers into being an activist and speaking out against mm-hmm. wrongs and, and, and prejudices and stereotypes. So I think that I was born this way into an environment where it had to be so. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like you have fed and nourished yourself with the books to that, uh, speak to that, right? That yes. Speak to uh, an active resistance to the status quo. Because I think that, um, you know, um, silent, you know, it's a bit like, you know, um, Thin love ain't love at all. Silent resistance ain't resistance at all. You know, you have to be active and vocal in it. Um, I think that's the way it it has to be. Um, I also, for me now at this stage in life, in my 40s, feel as if now it's a responsibility as I have a platform to, to speak out because I understand how women of color, but specifically black African women mm-hmm. are very often left out of the conversation or their opinions aren't valued. Mm-hmm. And so now I feel a responsibility mm-hmm. um, as someone who has been, who in certain spaces is listened to, mm-hmm. to use my voice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I um, thinking about Handmaid's Tale was reminded, you know, it's written as a document. It's mm-hmm. written as a testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written as something to be, fa- uh, it's written as a lecture that the final line of uh, Handmaid's Tale is, are there any questions? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. which I love. It's such an amazing last line of a novel. Yes. Uh, so many. <laughs> yes. Right. And the, and the, um, it's such an invitation to participate in the novel in an active way. And I I'm, was struck, I, I guess, reading about it, I was thinking about this idea of the literature of witness mm-hmm. and that 
all of your five books could be described in that way. The the act of witnessing testimony, uh, 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 saying this happened, this happened here, which is also, I think, what your book Beneath the Tamarind Tree is, right? That they're, they're, yes. I, I, I was struck by possibly there being a, a through line of uh, witnessing, which sounds passive, and yet the act of witnessing and writing it down, transcribing, is an incredibly active act. Absolutely. An act of defiance. Absolutely. And for the girls, uh, now young women, who were kidnapped, you know, I write about this in my book, and it, it's it's fairly well known that even in captivity, they kept journals mm. to bear witness to what they were going through. And to me, it goes back to something far more fundamental in that um, people of color very often don't own their own stories, right? They don't tell their stories. Their stories are told by other people. Mm. And so maybe all these books I'm drawn to are the ones where um, characters, individuals on the margins are telling their story, Mm. whether they be children you know, in To Kill a Mockingbird, whether it be off-red story being told as a woman in a society where women have no voice, or the story of Pecola and her poor black broken family, mm-hmm. all going to Suffer and Denver and Beloved. Um, so yes, they're all marginalized characters or viewed that way, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and their stories are being told, and that in itself is powerful and defiant. And also speaks to hope because we write a journal uh, at some level or leave a witness testimony in the hope that a future generation finds it. The implicit in it, maybe not in my journal. I was going to say, not in mine either. Uh, no, right. But, um, but, you know, maybe I wonder for your girls, as you say now, young women, I wonder whether it certainly seems part of the what Margaret Atwood is positing is the idea that in leaving a, a, a witness statement, history might change, something might change. Anne Frank wrote that journal mm-hmm. as an act of defiance mm-hmm. and in the hope someone would find it and remember and the act of remembering might sow the seeds of history going Agreed. another way in the Agreed. future. I think it's a map. I, sometimes I, I think about it as you know, when we write our journals, it is hopefully a mapping out of our emotions and a mapping out of the landscape in the hope that we can find ourselves a way, find a way back to that self mm-hmm. or certainly orient ourselves in the future. Yes. And um, I, I certainly think that in the case of Anne Frank or in, in the case of um, Beloved, maybe find our way back to humanity, find our way back to um Empathy, sympathy, you know, these, 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 these big, um, these, these, these big truths um, um, that sometimes we can get disconnected from. So um, I, I agree with you that there is a, there's a power in the telling of the story, telling one's own story. Let's talk about your last book, which I have had on the show before, but not for a long time. Uh, your last book is To Kill a Mockingbird mm. by Harper Lee. It was published in 1960. Uh, 
I don't think we need to waste any time uh, <laughs> telling people the plot of this one. If you haven't read it, uh, go away and read it <laughs> and then come back. Uh, I'd be hard pressed to find anyone that hadn't read this book. Uh, tell me when, when you read it, where you were in your life. I was, okay. yes, yeah, so it's a good question. I was in the UK. I had probably, this I read in my 30s. Mm. This I read in my 30s. And I think the thing that struck me about this book and, and maybe also a little bit taps into Beloved and The Bluest Eye, the stories we tell ourselves mm. about that which is out of reach. So the story that Scout and, and Jen Finch tell themselves about Radley, the stories that we, they tell themselves about society um, in the same way, the stories that Seth told herself about why she did what she did and, and all of these things really, really struck me. Um, and again, for me, this book, it, where it landed for me was it's, it's 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 exploration of race and 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 law, the legal system and the loss of childhood innocence mm. and i think that i i finished the book and was i found it sobering mm. i found it sobering and um while atticus finch urges his children to, to stay hopeful Hmm. Um, I think having read it again in recent years, I have found myself again questioning how much has changed since Harper Lee wrote that book. Hmm. And so it, it, it has landed differently. I think, you know, when I read it back then, it was about childhood innocence and the stories we tell ourselves. And I read it fairly recently. And then again, it became more kind of commentary on the state of um, the criminal justice system in America and mm. the inequities in society and not just about race, but also about class. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, simplistic in ways, but poses, it's, it's a great entry point to many conversations. Mm. I think that's interesting. I, I was again, enjoying doing a sort of deep dive around it. I realize it's been so long since I've read it mm -hmm. that I think my copy is still back in England. Yeah. I've lived here for 20 years. So that means I really haven't read it for a long time. So I just ordered a new copy and I'm going to, I'm going to reread it this week mm -hmm. because in reading around it, I realized how much I'd forgotten. Yes. And I realized how diverse people's responses to it. Are. Yes. Um, Oprah was asked about it. Uh, someone made a big documentary about um, the impact of, mm -hmm. of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And Oprah called it our national novel, and which I thought was really interesting. And I, I was trying to sort of unpack that for myself. And I felt like, I think this is why, and it's why it almost certainly will not be the last time it comes up on my show. <laughs> I think this is why, because it speaks to so much. Yes. Uh, about, I mean, not just the American identity, I would say all kinds of identity, but very specifically American mm -hmm. identity. It talks about class, conscience, race, mm -hmm. childhood, paternity, mm -hmm. uh, being, a, uh, being a brother or a sister, what it mm -hmm. is to be a sibling. Mm -hmm. the, the, as you say, the points of entry are so many. So w what you would relate to in the book becomes 
manifold. Yes. I, I had no way of knowing. I mean, I suspected what what you were responding to, but I couldn't. There were so many things you could be responding to in that book. And, yeah. and that to me is always uh, the hallmark of a classic, actually, is is that we could talk about you could talk to me about Anna Karenina and your Anna Karenina is not the same as my last guests or mine. Absolutely. And and that's not necessarily true of every book. Most, some books we all leave with some degree of consensus over, but the classics, I think the ones that have that multiplicity and um, empathy, that human, that humanizing uh, boundary that, that holds us all in it. I, I think that's sort of, I, I, I'm so interested by that and by that hallmark of sort of great literature. Yeah, I think I think that there's there's a lot of truth in that, and, and I mean I don't think Oprah could have said Tony Morrison because Tony Morrison was a good friend, but I would I would contend that beloved would be closer to what I would choose as this nation's novel, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but because I think of its unvarnished view of the brutality that, you know, um, this country is built upon mm-hmm. um, and the choices that people of color have had to make mm-hmm. um, for their freedom and how they have managed to love themselves and love their families, even in the midst of things pulling them apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go with Beloved over, over Harper Lee's Tickle uh-huh. and But having said that, not to, to, to disagree too vociferously with, Miss Winfrey, um, I, I, I do think that it is, and also I think, you know, you have to think about the time in which the book was written, mm-hmm. you know, which makes it even more searing an indictment mm-hmm. of, of, of America and, you know, it being set in Alabama and us seeing the inner workings of that trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, you know, and, and, you know, I, I was thinking about it as, as I, got ready to, to speak to you about that that whole um, dynamic in, in, within the trial where Tom can't call her a liar. Mm. And, you know, when you take that and you pull it all the way to today and what has become, you know, not to make too, too close an association, but certainly what we've seen in recent times around the Karens and around you know, the, the case in Central Park and the bird watcher and, and just yeah. all of this, you know, it's, so when you put, when you put that next to what happened in 2020, you think about when this book was written, it's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Remarkable yeah. in her honesty and remarkable in how little has changed. And how little has changed. Yeah. She, I, I was, uh, amazed again you know by how many by how different people's reactions can be to this i happened to look up in the atlantic i was curious to see how it was reviewed mm. at the time mm. the atlantic reviewed to kill a mockingbird in a way that i i just found it so amazing this is the conclusion of the atlantic's review written in 1960 A variety of adults, mostly eccentric in Scout's judgment, and a continual bubble of incident make To Kill a Mockingbird pleasant, undemanding (laughs) reading. That is how that book was just pleasant, undemanding reading. So let's contrast this with the fact that the book was banned, Mm -hmm. uh, has been banned multiple times, but at this instant was banned in 1966 by uh, Hanover County School Board, to which... 
Harper Lee wrote them a letter, mm-hmm. one, a rare occasion where she put her head above the parapet and she wrote to them. Editor to the newsletter. Recently, I've received echoes down this way of the Hanover County School Board's activities, and what I've heard makes me wonder if any of its members can read. Surely it is plain to the simplest intelligence that To Kill a Mockingbird spells out in, word, spells out in words of seldom more than two syllables a code of honour and conduct, Christian in its ethic, that is the heritage of all Southern. To hear that the novel is immoral has made me count the years between now and 1984, for I have yet to come across a better example of doublethink. I feel, however, that the problem is one of illiteracy, not Marxism. <laughs> Therefore, I enclose a small contribution to the Beadle Bumble Fund that I hope will be in use to enroll the Hanover County School Board in any first grade of its choice. Happily. Wonderful. Great. I loved that letter. I Wonderful. <laughs> I think that is absolutely outstanding. <laughs> Here, learn to read, motherfuckers. Exactly. Don't come here and tell me that this is what the book... Did you read it? Can you read it? Can you comprehend it? Um, Yes, but... I mean... You know, I was going to say that could bring us to critical race theory today and and the feelings around that and, and the telling of the story and how that story is interpreted by people. You know, again... So where, where to begin and where to end yeah. if we're to talk right. about that and, and, and the many issues that bedevil this great country. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank choosing you. these books and for sharing your story with us and with thank me uh, through these stories. I, I find uh, it's so moving. It's so moving to hear your experience filtered through the books that you chose. Thank and you. It's so much fun. It was just lovely. It's such a treat. That's why I invented this podcast was just the excuse to to do this and to hear other people's stories and the stories that made their stories. So I'm really, really grateful to you for spending the time and sharing sharing yourself so generously. I, I loved every minute of it. So, so thank you for that. My thanks to Aisha for that wonderful discussion of her books. It was so fun to revisit Toni Morrison in some depth and be reminded of just what an extraordinary voice she has. We talked a bit about the literature of witness, of bearing witness to trauma or uh, injustice. I wonder what books have given you a sense of indignation or of wanting to take up a cause. I'd love to hear Will you pop your replies on our Instagram page, Bookish with Sonia Walker? As ever, you'll find all the books listed in the show notes or on the show's website. My thanks to my wonderful publicist, Teal Canaday, for introducing me to Aisha, and as ever, to the brilliant Brie Weiss for producing the episode, as well as keeping up the website, the show notes, and generally keeping the whole show on the road. Join me next week for a very exciting episode where I talk to Chris Anderson, the head of TED. Unsurprisingly, he had some pretty fascinating books and I really can't wait to share them with you.